This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 124. Today we have round two responses in our Christ and Culture series from Nelson Klosterman and Daryl Hart. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org slash donate. Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and this is episode number 124, and we are continuing today our Christ and Culture series. Today we bring you a double shot with responses from Daryl Hart and Nelson Klosterman. This is round two, so each man is offering a critique of what everyone else said in round one regarding Christ and Culture. In round one, everyone was able to to provide their basic understanding of questions about common grace, uh, politics, the relationship of the church to the state, the Decalogue's continuing significance, etc. And in round two, each participant is able to critique and respond to the comments by all the other participants. This brings an end to round number two with Hart and Klosterman's comments. And next week, we will continue our discussion looking at round three, in which everyone gets to respond to the criticisms laid against them. So without delaying our episode any longer, let me introduce to you first Dr. Nelson Klosterman, who teaches at Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Let me uh, let me address a, a couple of items. That uh, first of all, uh, I, I need to acknowledge the uh, widespread uh, agreement mm-hmm. that exists among all of us in terms of the questions that you posed in the first round. I uh, wouldn't want to make more of the disagreements than than needs to be made for clarification right. and for um, further stimulation for discussion. Um, I, I consider everybody uh, that is participating to uh, represent um, principles and ideas that are uh, consonant with, uh, with Reformed confessional biblical Christianity. So that's important to maintain. Nonetheless, there are some questions that need to be posed, I guess, to sharpen the discussion a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, let me begin with uh, some questions that I would pose to some comments uh, of Dr. Hart. Um, the uh, particularly, I, I have in mind, for example, um, the, uh, the the notion that he spoke of in connection with distinctively Christian music and sculpture and art and things like that. He expressed appreciation for uh, Ralph Vaughan Williams and. Uh, that there, he indicated there's room in the church for Christian musicians, and uh, but when it comes to other things, he says uh, there will be there will be Christian themes in art, and that Christians who are artists can could handle basic human themes, fallenness, hope, etc., in in distinctively Christian ways, and uh, I I agree with that, and therefore I'm puzzled by um, by any. Uncom- discomfort with regard to talking about the 
application of Christian principles um, in areas like politics, statecraft, economics, um, and education, and so on and so forth, it, beyond the, the, the sphere of the church. If there can be uh, distinctively Christian themes in art, and if common human themes can be treated in a Christian way, as he indicates in his earlier answers, then uh, I'm puzzled by um, his discomfort, sure. apparently, uh, in those other areas. So that that's one area that I'd invite some discussion. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I like both his and Dr. Dennison's treatment of the doctrine of common grace, well, perhaps even uh, Doug Wilson's, in connection with the doctrines of creation and providence. Um, Dr. Hart indicated he's not sure why we need common grace when we have these other doctrines, and I'm very, very sympathetic to that, um, that analysis, and I myself tend to place that doctrine in those, in those areas. That's, so that's a, a compliment. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to go through these one by one to identify and then come back. Sure. Uh, with regard to Denison, I, I appreciated Dr. Denison's emphasis and warning against uh, viewing culture monistically or monolithically. Um, I think he's very right that there are there are two cultures in the world, and uh, they they proceed from respectively belief and unbelief. And the, this is due to the antithesis being established and maintained throughout history, and uh, that comes to expression then in cultural and manifestation in cultural ways. So. It's very, very dangerous and abstract to talk about the culture uh, or Christians and culture or Christianity and culture. And uh, so I think his note there was was quite helpful. Mm. Now, let me say, um, by way of general uh, discussion, first in the area of uh, politics and statecraft and the call of civil government, um, I am puzzled by some... Uh, what I consider to be omissions in the discussion with regard, for example, to Belgic Confession, Article 36. Um, most of us know that that article was revised in early 20th century under the leadership of Abram Kuyper and others who wanted uh, to excise from the article uh, any direct calling or reference to the government, to the state, to root out and prevent idolatry, false worship, etc., we all know that we're agree. We agree with that. However, um, the current Article 36 of the Belgic continues to identify the office of civil magistrate and of civil government as that of watching uh, or protecting the sacred ministry, protecting the sacred ministry that the kingdom of Christ may thus be promoted. It says they must therefore countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by every one as He commands in His word. Now that strikes me as, as far from far from being neutral with respect to the Christian religion and Christian faith. Um, the state, according to Belgic 36, is called to uh, protect and to promote the kingdom of Christ. That's what it says. And what what's troubling to me is the silence, the omission, the ignoring, the neglect of that particular note which belongs to our confession. Now, what we do with that in terms of its outworking and implementation, in terms of concrete political office, is a very important question. It's a very complex and complicated question. I understand all of that. Mm. 
My plea is that we go back to the confessions and agree about what's there and then work and worry about how to implement and how to formulate it. Um, in that connection, I want to, uh, I want to, in the second place, draw attention to Canons of Dort, uh, 344. Here, too, it's an error of omission. It's, it's a silencing, a neglect that troubles me. Because we all agree, this is in reference to natural law, natural light, the remnants of uh, the image of God, etc. And I am persistently encountering this phenomenon that when people quote or cite or refer to Article Four of the Bel- of sorry Canons Third and Fourth uh, Main Heads, right. they um, they cite the first sentence. There is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall, by virtue of which he retains some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrates a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. Now, this sentence uh, obligates all of us, I think, to acknowledge the existence of things like natural law, natural revelation, and natural light. It it obligates us to acknowledge that uh, unregenerate man has a sense of right and wrong. But now comes the next sentence, which... Very few people in print or in public discussion care to address. It says, but this light of nature is far from enabling man to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to him. Uh, We all agree. Natural light can't bring us to Christ. Natural revelation can't save us. But it goes on to say, so far, in fact, that man does not use it rightly, even in matters of nature and society. Instead, continuing the last sentence in various ways, he completely distorts this light, whatever its precise character, and suppresses it in unrighteousness. In, do- in doing so, he renders himself without excuse before God. Now, far from presenting a positive role of natural light, natural law, general revelation, the confessions, and I would submit John Calvin as well, insisted on the primary function of all of these things being to render unregenerate man inexcusable before God. Now, that's not a positive culture-building, neutrality-enhancing, common discourse-protecting formulation. Far from it. And therefore, I'm concerned about the optimistic sounds uh, attached to discussions of natural law, of common grace, of cultural transformation, which sounds tend, in my judgment, to ignore these uh, last two sentences in Canons of Dort, Article or 344. So that's the second comment. Sure, sure. And I think we have to do business, in other words, with those sentences. And I'd like my interlocutors to, uh, to take a whack at that one and see where they, where they come out in that connection. Um, another comment that I'd like to make is that, um, and this isn't directly addressed in any of the respondents, it's not targeted to anybody's answer, but it's this caution and this observation. I think we need to carefully discriminate or differentiate rather between the following phrases, because these are not univocal and they do not refer to the same thing. Christianity and culture, religion and culture, faith and culture, Christ and culture, the church and culture. These are all very different things. And sometimes in our discussions, we can tend to to elide these phrases so that 
um, while we might agree, all of us, that the church and culture has a distinct kind of relationship, the church ought not to be building bridges, the institutional church ought not to be building bridges uh, over rivers, ought not to be funding political parties or funding political candidates. Um, nonetheless, one's faith, one's faith comes into play in bridge building and in political party funding and such things as that. And I think the discussion tends to get derailed when our aversion to the church mixing it up outside its sphere of competence and authority, our aversion to that extends to an aversion of having faith or religion affect and be uh, integrated into those various activities that lie outside the sphere of the church. So I, I hope I'm being clear in trying to uh, distinguish between these various terms. I advocate, and I, uh, I vigorously advocate, the relevance and integration of faith in all of cultural activity, that one's worldview, one's religion, inescapably forms culture, as Doug Wilson pointed, to, pointed out to us with regard to Henry Van Til's definition of culture as religion externalized. It's not the same as the church externalized. So these are quite different entities. And uh, so that's that comment with regard to uh, to to terms yeah. and terminology. Um, and uh, basically, I think uh, I think I've said um, everything I've wanted to say. I okay. Don't re- I don't want to repeat my own uh, my own answers that I gave. <laughs> but I hope what I've uh, commented on here is uh, sufficient for uh, advancing the discussion. Yeah. Um, and for uh, giving my interlocutor something to, to talk about and munch on with me. But in, ter- in terms of, just uh, before I let you go, um, some of the other areas, I know you've addressed many of these in broad strokes, but do you find just general uh, basic agreement on the issues of vocation and education and, and some of the other things that were discussed? Yeah, uh, generally I do. I, I find... Um, um, I, the, the, the notion of vocation as being to the glory of God is helpful, but not precise. Okay. And I, I, I would like us as Reformed uh, theologians and, and Reformed Christians to articulate a concept of vocation that includes our partnering with God in history, mm-hmm. a partnering to which we've been restored in Christ, and for which we were created, and a partnering that whose fruits, I judge, will be sanitized and purified and continue to bless us and God in eternity. Mm-hmm. And that, um, it seems to me, is, I would hope, is, is uh, a helpful, even an eschatological uh, definition of vocation and work. You know, I'm a preacher by trade, and when we, from the pulpit, try to concretize the text, you can say almost in every sermon, from every text, now, whatever you do, make sure you glorify God. Well, that's true, but is it helpful? <laughs> it's true, but is it is it concrete enough? And I think the Bible offers us uh, a bit more with regard to vocational theology or a theology of vocation, and I'm trying to formulate that quickly here. 
so, but I think there's general agreement also with regard to to Christian education, though. I, I think that uh, in terms of some materials that I've written and some materials that Dr. Hart has written, um, I, I think our disagreements did not come to clear expression in the interviews that you that you gave to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Hart has written, and I've responded and critiqued and analyzed that in terms of the uh, the place and function, the legitimacy of a, a Christian uh, Christian university education or a Christian higher education, where the worldview of Scripture, the, the doctrines of Scripture, are brought to bear in the science laboratory, in the language lab, in the English classroom, and in teaching economics and polit- political science. Mm-hmm. I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that's his position or viewpoint, nor did it come out clearly, because I think the question asked was had to do with whose responsibility is it. Just, uh, just for the record, would you call yourself Augustinian as well? Oh yeah, yeah, I would, and I, I I do think that, however, Augustinianism and Augustine is not the same as Martin Luther's two kingdom or John Calvin's two kingdom, and therefore I think um, for Augustine there were two cities and these were antithetical and you could not belong, you could not belong hmm. to uh, the city of God and the other city. Hmm. One was a citizen of one or the other, and of course his theology was seeking to work out how they interrelated and interacted. That brings an end to Dr. Klosterman's round two remarks. We will now move on to hear from Dr. Daryl Hart, who teaches at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania, as well as Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Here is Dr. Hart with his round two response. At the, I think at the macro level, what is uh, striking about the the presentations is um, is the question of the antithesis and where you need to draw it the line between um, the saved and the unsaved or um, some kind of reform worldview and a non-reform worldview um, and and I think um, that's where I, I was probably the most uncomfortable with the other presentations um, in the sense that uh, I certainly think the church needs to be separate from the world um, and the church needs to be a disciplined community mm-hmm. and needs to discipline uh her members and her her officers and and so to maintain her in integrity um, but the question then is whether that sort of discipline needs to extend outward into the culture and so whether whether you can in some way dis- extend that distinction to cultural endeavors political endeavors um, and that's where I think I might sound the most um, secular, I guess. Having written a book called Secular Faith, I guess it's okay to say that. <laughs> but, um, but I just don't see the need for the, the lines to be drawn outside the covenant community that way. Now, I can certainly appreciate why parents will want to educate their children certain ways, um, 
and the church um, can support that and can try to correct that at times if it's if it's flawed. Um, but um, so that's a, that's a major concern, which is what is the nature of the antithesis and how far does it reach, mm-hmm. and how far does it especially reach outside the the outside the church, and how much you can extend. No problem. Try to shut her in here. I don't mind. I mean, if it's as long as you don't mind. Um, because every recording I do has jingle okay. jangle of Warfield's tags and <laughs> has that stupid alarm when people right. come down the driveway. <laughs> people are used to it. It's got some character then. Not sanitary. Um, so the antithesis. So it, it. So how much the antithesis, which is reflected in some way in regenerate and non-regenerate, and then how much that extends into other areas outside the church. Because in the church, we are perhaps dealing at times with the unregenerate. Not ideally, if we have um, a truly truly disciplined church, but Scripture teaches in this, in this era of redemptive history, we're going to have um, wheat and tares together in the church. Um, so <clears throat> even then... The distinction between the regenerate and the unregenerate doesn't hold up even within the church, but then much more so in in society and, and culture. I just don't see regeneration needing to be applied the way some of the other other guys did. Um, then at, at the macro level, second point, I guess at the macro level is one of of um, <clears throat> continuity between this world and the world to come, mm-hmm. I sensed in in um, in Wilson and Klosterman much more of a uh, of a of a continuity between this world and the world to come. Um, even especially, I guess, at times when talking about culture, how Christians will enjoy the best culture in the, in the world to come, and um, and I th- I think I sense more of discontinuity in in, in Denison's remarks. Um, yeah. And I'm much more sympathetic, and and would find myself leaning in that direction more toward discontinuity, um, because of passages like those in Peter, where he talks about the world being burned up, um, or even <clears throat> the amazing discontinuity between um, the relations between husbands and wives in this world, and the, and and the elimination of marriage in the world to come. Um, I don't know what that means uh, because we will still be sexual beings, I would imagine, in the world to come. We will still have male and female genitalia, and yet they won't be being used for procreation, I don't think. Maybe they will be, but... um, So, I mean, it seems to me there's all sorts of reasons for thinking about discontinuity between this world and the next. And that that then also, I think, influences the way that you under or look at culture, um, and that you look at culture in this world as only a um, a penultimate um, expression in some ways of what might might come, but certainly not a, a real realization of what the world to come will look like because of of sin. And also because of the difference between uh, redemption and, and glorification. 
Um, I, I, I don't know if I said this in the previous interview, but <clears throat> I've always been struck in Luther's remarks, or somewhere in Luther about, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> somewhere in Luther the difference, be, just as Israel could not have in any way um, understood or appreciated uh, what the new order was going to look like after the coming of the Messiah, which is why even when Jesus was with his disciples, even after the resurrection, they still didn't get it on the road to Emmaus. Um, they were still thinking about a restoration of Israel. Um, and so they, they didn't know a redemptive order apart from Israel. But that's what one that was coming when, when the blessings of salvation would extend to all the nations. And how much more so will we not be able to conceive of what the new order will be? So even to talk about the best of cultural products, and interestingly, oftentimes the best cultural products are not by Christians, um, which again makes us wonder about the effects of regeneration on cultural endeavor. If if it's if it Mozart and Bach, I mean Mozart and Beethoven make it into um, the category of good music, then um, you know what does that say about regeneration and its effects on on cultural work? Wagner. Yeah. Um, so I have no idea what will what we'll be doing culturally in in the new heavens and new earth, and I'm much more comfortable with with discontinuity. So that's another I think difference. Now how that fits with the earlier remark about antithesis and regeneration. Uh, it sounds to, sounds well. I'm not sure where to go with that. Maybe we we'll want to talk about it more or follow up in, in a future interview. Um, then I guess I'm just thinking about specific, so a few specific um, disagreements, perhaps, with some of the other contributors. Um, what, one thing I found interesting in in Doug Wilson's remarks. Was that he 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 was he said he was relatively comfortable with two kingdoms, but only one king, um, and he talked about general and special revelation needing to cohere, and so he was wanting to emphasize unity, but on the other hand, he does want to distinguish between creational law and redemptive law, and so. At times, also, I thought he was drawing upon the sort of um, distinctions that are characteristic of a two-kingdom approach. Um, okay, so that I think that was one of the more specific things with with Wilson. With um, it's Klosterman's birthday. Nelson. Nelson, sorry. This one. With Nelson Klosterman. Um, I, I think one of the specific things that got me going a little bit was the idea that we need to interpret natural law or general revelation through the lens of Scripture, or the spectacles of Scripture. And, and that seems to be... Um, that also would seem to fit with the idea of the importance of regeneration because not everyone would interpret Scripture well apart from re regeneration. So... It's the regenerate in some way that need to understand or interpret general revelation or natural law. Um, and, and in my mind, I 
am just struck by how much, I think I said this in the first round, there are authors who are remarkably gifted at interpreting natural law or general revelation and so much wiser than most Christians whom I read. And part of that has to do with how much time they spend thinking about um, general revelation and its, its structures, its categories, its givenness in a way that oftentimes Christians don't. And I think Christians don't for good reasons because oftentimes they're more inclined to read Scripture than nature. Um, now, obviously, there would be Christian scientists who would read nature more than the average Christian, um, or artists who might read parts of nature more than the average Christian. But, but still, um, when it comes down to sort of on average, it seems to me more Christians are inclined to uh, interpret Scripture or go to Scripture as their norm for their lives, which is a good thing, and not look at general revelation. And but. But that means that the people who, who don't read Scripture and are looking at general revelation all the time kind of have a leg up on Christians in, in, in their capacity to understand at least how general revelation works, and if they're theists, how that in some ways also reflects God or the Creator. Um, now, I know the appeal will often be made to common grace, but I, I feel like, again, that's, a, that's an unfair appeal um, because it seems like it, it minimizes the contribution of the unregenerate. Ultimately, I want to say they, their insights into general revelation come from God because God created them a certain way with gifts and capacities to understand this. So I don't want to say they're somehow autonomous in their ability to understand things. But I do want to say that they may have gifts that Christians have because it comes from their creator but that oftentimes, too, Christians could more emulate non-Christians in their wisdom and smartness about the world if they actually spent the amount of time reading and studying um, the way that the non-Christians do. Um, so, so again, I, I don't want to um, give a, <clears throat> a preference to Christians in their ability to understand the natural world or general revelation on the basis of their knowledge of Scripture or regeneration. I think there is a category of knowledge independent in some sense, not in an absolute sense, independent of Scripture and regeneration that allows um, pagans to understand the world well and that Christians could well benefit from those, um, those pagan, that pagan wisdom. Um, and again, I can find evidence of this in all sorts of appeals of Calvin to the ancients and, and <clears throat> ancient philosophy, for instance. Um, and, I, and again, I, I would not be, I'd not necessarily try to do this simply on the basis of common grace. I think I'd do it much more on the basis of an intelligence that these people have from God. Um, I think... One other specific with uh, Klosterman concerned the role of government and the um, <clears throat> and the function of the Decalogue for the government. And I mean, I've I mean, I've, I've been on, at certain 
blogs about this, and so I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but I just don't understand where you get a biblical basis for saying that, for instance, the um, governments are called to recognize the first table of the law but not enforce the first table of the law. Um, when, the Reform, when Reformed Protestantism was the established religion <clears throat> in certain places, clearly the first table of the law was also being enforced. So it seems to me, again, there is a move toward a post-18th century revolutionary world approach, even in those who want to hold on to the normative nature of, of the Decalogue for government. And so there's, in some ways, a wiggle room provided by distinguishing uh, between the first table and the second table and what the, what the magistrate is called to do um, that... I find no reason in, on the basis of Scripture where a Christian family, a Christian church, or a, a redeemed state, as in the case of Israel, is called upon simply to uh, observe or recognize the, 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 the whole of the Decalogue, but not enforce the first table. I mean, I just don't see that for Christian churches. Christian churches enforce the whole table whole table of the law because they're recognizing the authority of uh, the whole Decalogue. Christian families might approach that in some ways a little bit differently, but still they're not making distinction between whether the child is stealing versus whether the child is keeping the Lord's Day holy. So parents are probably going to enforce both tables, and certainly Israel was called to enforce both tables, and yet Closerman wants to say that the modern state can recognize the Decalogue but not enforce the first table. I, I just find that truly puzzling. Um, so, And then with, with um, <clears throat> Bill, who, uh, who, with whom I was probably in the most agreement uh, throughout on a variety of uh, matters, um, I, but the, the thing that kept hitting me was the idea of epistemological self-consciousness that he emphasized. And I've had this sort of question, disagreement with, I guess, Vantillians or, uh, over the years, but I, it, or, and also Kuyperians, but that, that idea of epistemological self-consciousness seems to, to me to favor philosophers, people who can be epistemologically self-conscious. And it seems to me that not every Christian is called epistemological self-conscious because there are some Christians who don't even know what epistemology is. And maybe they need to know it. I don't know that. I'd like to know that from Scripture where they need to know what epistemology is. And if that's the case, why don't our catechisms have anything in there about epistemology? Now, granted, you can say it's implicit in certain ways, but... I do see Kuiper and Van Til in a kind of in a line of post-Kantian idealism that that favors the mind and some kind of reason or rationality um, that I find um, leaves certain Christians out, perhaps. Um, and I don't think that necessarily Christians need to be epistemologically self-conscious to be faithful. Now, I can understand those who are called to be epistemologically, or those who have the capacity to be epistemologically self-conscious, 
If they're not being so, mm. then that's a problem. You think it's elitist? Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's always struck me that in Kuiper's idea, when Kuiper tries to expand the spheres of sphere sovereignty in in the university environment, that um, the spheres don't extend to the common areas of life, like baking, janitors, plumbing, things like that. It's all about those departments within the university, whether it be science or art or... And these are all professional endeavors, and middle-class people like to hear that because then it could make their own endeavors, if their office jobs, more important because they have a sphere to which they're called. Um, and so you're right. I mean, I think it does. It could sound elitist. So those, I think, are. Um, but I, I did like, and, and I'd be curious to hear how Bill would answer this. He, he also talked a lot about. Um, Christian liberty, I think more so than than uh, than Wilson and and uh, Klosterman, and so I wonder how much Christian liberty applies to something like epistemological self consciousness. Mm-hmm. So, um, but also I think it's you know one of the other things I, I would I would ask is or put on the table is how much epistemological self consciousness is possible if there is a real doubleness, not in the antithetical sense, but in the proximate, ultimate understanding of things, as far as the preacher in Ecclesiastes saying that all is vanity, Mm -hmm. and everything in this world is kind of a vanity, it's a vain enterprise, compared to the ultimate truths. And so it seems to me that maybe if I were to grant epistemological self-consciousness, that it wouldn't result in the kind of coherence that that uh, Denison is arguing for, that it actually could result in a real doubleness of mind, whereas I do this thing here in this world now, but I, it's not at all going to be what I do in the world to come, or it may not be, and it's certainly not what I do on the Lord's Day. So even in our, in our weekly um, co- uh, walk as Christians, we have a kind of doubleness because our lives on Sundays are generally different from the way we live the rest of our days. Um, and so if epistemological self-consciousness can make room for a doubleness of mind um, and a kind of tension between seeing ourselves as pilgrims, seeing a homeland elsewhere, um, and yet still also working for the welfare of the city and built, planting vineyards and marrying and having kids and doing all that kind of earthly stuff, and recognizing that is good, but not ultimately good, it seems to me that the nature of the case, it's going to be, based on eschatology, we're going to have a kind of doubleness of, of mind. That brings a conclusion to round number two in our Christ and Culture series. If you would like to hear the other episodes in this series, please visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you will find all of our previous episodes, as well as episodes from our other programs, including Reformed Media Review, Reformed Classics, Proclaiming Christ, Philosophy for Theologians. We have all sorts of resources available for you to listen to at Reformed Forum. 
reformedforum.org. If you would like to get a hold of us, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Reformed Forum. You can also send us real physical mail now at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. We thank you so much for listening, and we also thank those of you who support us on a weekly basis. And we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.